Hello and welcome to another episode of Cloud Security Podcast. Today we're talking about how can you find security holes in Azure. That's right. In the last week, there have been so many conversations about Azure security holes that have been discovered by different companies. I think I did a LinkedIn post on it that seemed to have gone viral. So I'll definitely ask you to check that out if you are on LinkedIn or on Twitter following me. The point being, these cloud service providers and Azure is not just the only one. AWS has had vulnerabilities. GCP has had vulnerabilities. And in this episode, we obviously wanted to go through some of those vulnerabilities, but primarily what I wanted to focus on was how can you also contribute in finding security holes in Azure? And I mean it in the most nicest way by being more responsible in disclosing that to Azure, AWS, and Google Cloud, or even any other cloud service provider you may be researching into so that all of us also benefit from it and you don't keep it to yourself. And while you're at it, you also get rewarded by these cloud service providers for disclosing the vulnerability. So in a way, it's like bug bounty, but for cloud. And it's a very new field. Not many people talk about it. We had a couple of episodes on this for the Google Cloud Security Month and also some for the AWS Security Month, but I did not find one for Azure so far. And I'm so excited about sharing this with you. Thanks to the help from Yoav, who is from Orca Security. And he came in to spoke about the two vulnerabilities in Azure that their team had discovered. And they also spoke about how they approach security research. And maybe you can find some inspiration there as well. I would have all the links on the show notes for www.cloudsecuritypodcast.tv. If you find this free episode created by us helpful, I would really appreciate if you could drop us a review on iTunes, a rating on both iTunes and Spotify. It really helps us get noticed by a lot more people and we get to help out a lot more people. Or even share this episode with someone who you know was going to look into the security research field in the cloud space. It would really mean a lot to me because I get to help out a lot more people. So thank you so much for the support. For people who dropped in their review last week, and thank you so much. And you would have noticed this is an odd time to be releasing the episode because normally it is the day after or tomorrow and you're time, depending on what time zone you're in. But I appreciate your patience with this. And we are trying to experiment with a new couple of times. So you may see a lot more frequent episodes this month. You'll probably hear a lot more from me this month as we have had so many good guests lined up for this month. So I look forward to talking to you on the next episode for Azure Security. For now, enjoy how you can find security holes in Azure. Talk to you soon. Peace. As companies expand to the cloud, asset visibility worsens. The Jupyter One Cyber Asset Management Platform helps you get it back. Jupyter One provides context, understanding, and visibility into your entire cyber asset attack surface with over 150 integrations, including AWS, Google Cloud, Azure, and more. Jupyter One helps you answer complex security and infrastructure questions, understand the contextual relationships between assets, and build the foundation for your security program. Try it for yourself. Get started with your free Jupyter One account today. If you're a software engineer, you have been there. It's 9 p.m. You're finally unwinding for work. Your phone buzzes with an alert. Something's broken. And your mind's already racing it. What could it be? Is it the back end or the front end? Is it global? Now the whole team is scrambling from tool to tool and messaging person after person to find and fix the issue. That won't happen if you get New Relic. That next 9 p.m. call is just waiting to happen. Get New Relic before it does, and you get access to the whole New Relic platform and the 100 GB of data free forever. No credit card required. Sign up at newrelic.com slash CSP. That's N-E-W-R-E-L-I-C dot com slash CSP. Hey, thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. So first of all, I know we're going to talk about researching security holes in Azure and probably broader cloud security as well, cloud service providers as well. 
But for people who may not know who about with yourself, could you share a bit about yourself and what was your journey to your current role? Sure. So my name is and I'm the CTO at Orca Security, which is a cloud security. My journey into the world of security is my joke is that I was indoctrinated or I didn't really have a choice. Like I, I'm Israeli and most Israelis at the age of 18 are drafted to the army. And I was lucky to to be chosen to to Unit 8200, where I was a security researcher and an officer. When I finished my military service, I joined the, the private sector and worked in various small and big companies. My last few roles were, I was an architect at a startup, which was acquired by Checkpoint. So I was at Checkpoint for a couple of years. I was a tech lead, an architect, and an architect at the office of the CTO and a research lead for all of Checkpoint. And I joined Orca as CTO three years. So, and it's been a hell of a journey. Yeah, 100%. And especially when you guys have been discovering all these Azure vulnerabilities as well, which is something that I'm sure a lot of people are curious about as well. I, I want to probably want to let the set the level playing field for everyone because a lot of people would hear this and go, well, this sounds like bug bounty. This sounds like pen testing. Is research in cloud security the same as, are we really pen testing AWS, Azure, Google Cloud, what are we really doing? In the strictest level, it's very much the same. You choose a target which you believe uh, is valuable and you try to find uh, holes in it uh, and then you report it to, to the vendor and uh, yeah. some. And it depends on the program that they have, you might get found. But I, I would say that in our case, we don't do it for the bounty because we operate our research mainly for finding and improving the state of cloud security because we we're a cloud security citizen and we want to improve the state. But at the base level, it's very much the same. I wouldn't say it's a different world. Right. And so when, and I think because we were talking about this offline as well, because it's such a new thing to hear research specifically in cloud security. I mean, we did a couple of episodes when we were running AWS month and Google Cloud month. There was someone who came on the podcast. He got the bounty prize from Google Cloud on, I think, discovering something which is like a, a 1773. And it was really interesting to kind of hear how we kind of went down that process. So all three cloud service providers have some kind of a way to report vulnerability. So for people listening in, if they find something, they can just report through a, a genuine professional channel and not be sued by the, by the company. How there's a fear around if I yeah. tell them it's vulnerable. So, so yeah, all cloud providers have, have a language in their user agreement that allows for a security testing. And if you report it to them, and it's great that we have all the major vendors aligning to that standard. And I would say that like the what you said about the Google bounty, they're very much active in the bounty space and they really want to target their security efforts towards their product. And they have one of the earliest bounty programs and they're very quick to respond and give you great feedback. So it's a very recommended bounty program. Sweet. And maybe as, as a good segue into my next couple of questions as well, for because for people who probably are working in the Azure space, maybe defending this, or maybe just curious about from a research perspective, we were definitely want to touch on auto wrap the Azure automation thing that you guys discovered. What is it and what can people do about it? So maybe let's start with what is it first. So I'll just uh, I'll take one step back and then I'll dive right. There is all cloud vendors have something that which they call the shared responsibility model, where they put a very strict line. Where is the responsibility of the cloud provider and where is the responsibility of the? And most of the cloud research until recently was very much targeted at the customer side of the shared 
responsibility. What mistake you as a customer did in your cloud environment to allow attackers. To... One of the innovations in the space recently was to to actually also look at what the cloud provide, the cloud vendors themselves are doing in the space where they're responsible for. Right. So if you look in the last year, there were many new discoveries in the vendors side of the business and other work was one of those. It, it was a bug in, in the Azure automation service, which was found by an Orca researcher named Yanil Tsarimi from, from my team, a very smart and talented researcher. And you should definitely follow him on Twitter. He has also great advice. A anyway, the, the vulnerability was one of those head scratchers, which you, you don't expect to find in a large cloud provider. Right. Uh, so what he discovered was that when you're running an automation pipeline, there's actually an HTTP server running on local uh, where you can request your the token that you are using yourself. So think about it. You want to have a pipeline and you want it to have a managed identity. And this managed identity could be used to access, I don't know, Azure Blob Storage or any other service that you want. So, but what he discovered is that uh, alongside his uh, HTTP server serving his token, were other customers running on the same machine that they have their HTTP servers running on other ports. So he just scanned the entire port space and just grabbed tokens from other customers. So essentially, if you got lucky and you ran on the same machine as a big customer with a huge cloud estate, yeah. and you essentially got their tokens. And so, and we actually, and since this is an automation service, we could run an automation to just count the different tenant IDs that we got. And we got like a few hundreds. Yeah. So this was definitely, and, and we could use those tokens to actually move the pivot into the cloud state of the organization, get there from uh, two more interesting targets. But the few tokens that we did have a look were admin. So we didn't have to, to do a lot of work. Right. And it's an interesting one because, I mean, just to peel a few more layers to it so people understand the risk behind this, because basically what we are saying is I'm Netflix and I don't know, it's random, like just say LinkedIn for like because you're on LinkedIn. But technically, because you were on LinkedIn or Azure Automation, there was a local server running which allowed you to potentially access Netflix. Yeah. So it, you can think about it like that. They, they want, this is the automation service allows you to run like a Python script and you don't want to spin up a new machine for each Python script. So we have a few machines that are, and they're, they're supposed to be sandboxed from each other, but they miss this one thing in the sandboxing layer. So. Essentially, if my job and your job were uh, co-scheduled on the same machine at the same time, yeah. I could just grab your managed identity and just do whatever uh, your managed identity could do in your account. So, so the Azure service automation service by itself would not know any difference between is it or is it Ashish? For it, well, I have a request. I'm just gonna push it through. Yeah, it's more subtle than that. You don't get like a managed identity to the automation service. You get the managed identity for the entire Azure estate. You and so this is one of those things that we, we reported and Microsoft fixed very quickly. Like in one or two days, it was also already, yeah. yes, but we have vulnerabilities which are really easy to, to explain and dig into. And we have a, a vulnerability in our website and also Yanir has done a great Twitter thread to explain the, his entire thought process around finding the vulnerability. Oh, so, yeah, I will definitely link up that because I've got a question here from Vinny as well. He was asking about, is there an article or paper to know more about it in detail? So I'll link up the Orica blog that you mentioned as well. So please, so because I think that to me is like million dollar question every time we hear a vulnerability being discovered, like what was the thought process of the individual kind of going through, like even to think about from a local HTTP server running, because I, I, and this is probably uh, one 
an education piece for a lot of people. Because when you are given a service by a cloud provider, in this case, Azure, you're always thinking about the positive scenario, not thinking about from a research perspective. So maybe that's where a lot of us don't really poke the bear, for lack of a better word, to see what else is going on there. So, so it's resolved for the moment. Yes, it's resolved at the moment. And, and Microsoft had the, the facility to make sure no one else could have exploited it at the same time. Actually, they went ahead and went through the logs and made sure that no one else had, had this could do that. But I, I would just say that you have to think, think about the cloud as something abstract. It's definitely not the, it's the right way to use the cloud. It's not the right way to research because cloud is, is software and software has bugs and you have to ask yourself, how would you have done it? And if you don't know, how would you have done it? You can try to poke it and see how they have done it and ask yourself whether there's there's problems in the implementation. It's true because a lot of the understanding, because to your point, shared responsibility a lot of people misunderstand that to be, well, AWS or Azure or Google Cloud are taking care of security from their side. So I don't need to test anything. Like I remember how many times, or at least in the beginning, we, we used to get this question where, oh, is cloud secure? Because to your point, it is. And how do you, is something secure or not? Because you don't get a pen test report from AWS or Azure or Google Cloud. What's to believe them? I would try to refine your point. I think that comparing to alternatives, the cloud is a lot more secure than any other deployment method I've seen. Think about it. Let's compare all to work to for to log for J for example. Autowarp, we reported the bugs. Uh, a few hours later it was mitigated by for any every Azure customer out there. Yeah. And without uh, most customers having to do anything. Uh, and after that they went ahead and did a full incident response and looking if someone could have done something bad with it and reported it to, to customers. And right. they came out empty handed, but they've done all the yeah. let's log for J as a, on the other side. We are the Orca security product and one of its features is that I can see which vulnerabilities you have in your cloud estate. So mm -hmm. we're still working with some customers, helping them to migrate off vulnerable log4j until this day. And it's been a while. So December, man, it's like May. So it's been yeah, a while. Yeah, but it's hard. Like doing this at scale for companies with an estate of hundreds of thousands of uh, virtual machines and millions of containers, it's a very big undertaking to update them all. In that sense, you have to be in awe of how fast some cloud providers are doing this turnaround, like from bug report to patch in production. And it's a marvel of engineering that you have to look and say to yourself, they're really doing a great job with that. Yeah, uh, and I, think I agree with you on this as well, because one of the reasons why a lot of people moved from the data center to the cloud was just this, the speed to market and speed to even resolution as well, for, for lack of a better word. That is just amazing. Like, I think at the scale of you kind of have to imagine it is a mammoth, right? It, it is this big organization you, and they're serving the likes of Netflix, LinkedIn, all these big people out there. I imagine every major organization is hosted on cloud, at least some part. That's a pretty big undertaking. And to be able to resolve that in a few hours, that, that is definitely commendable. Yes. So we have to remember that although the cloud security vulnerabilities exist, it's not saying that if a security issue exists, then the software should be firm. It doesn't work like that. We have to look at like the entire security landscape and ask ourselves whether it's a risk that we are willing to take or unwilling to take. And I think the cloud as a risk is comparatively low against running your own data centers and having your own private cloud and operating it. So. Yeah, 100%. And I think we've got a few questions here as well. And I think I've got a request on from Shreyas as well as coming from the, what's it called? To Twitter spaces as well. So I'll go to Vinny's question first. 
So when you do your research, what is the approach to finding vulnerabilities in discovery stage? Okay, so it's very much, we since the cloud is very big. There are hundreds of services. Each cloud provider has a different offering. What we usually do is that we just pick something that sounds interesting. And uh, it's usually, it's sometimes directed from the customer request or product. And so the researcher starts to look at, I don't know, the automations uh, service because it sounds like an interesting service. Mm -hmm. And then it goes and reads the documentation and tries to play around with the service, see how it's supposed to work, how is it intended to work. And so usually it's something like playing with it, making, trying to see how the different parts interact and, and trying to shake up interesting behavior from that error messages, uh, different versions of dependencies, looking at the API itself to see if the public API is comparable with the SDK and, and what were the different documentation changes. So those things really guide us towards finding interesting. And after that, we try to shake things like you can think about it as a tree and you just shake the tree and sometimes uh, we get fruits and sometimes we don't. You get leaves. That's a good way to well, put it, man. I, I love it. Sorry, I don't, I don't finish. Uh, no, that's it. We, we, that's our approach. Cool. All right. Hopefully we need, uh, feel free to ask a follow-up question if you have one as well, man. Thanks for that. I've got Shreyas here. Thanks. Hey, what's your question, man, for you off? Yeah. So my question is regarding like multi-cloud scenarios. So when you are working through multi-cloud environment, there are a lot of different APIs involved. Is it valuable from a security perspective, creating like a standardized API in between because for every API, uh, for every cloud provider, there is our different API and from a security researcher's perspective, it is really tough because you need specialization for each cloud provider. So for example, we have TCP IP for networking and then email or SMTP for emails and everything. So do you think long-term, do you see this some standardization uh, for interacting with cloud services? You have? That, that's interesting. I'll say that yes and no, okay? Uh, yes, we will. Uh, we are having like a standard API for accessing cloud providers. We just don't call it cloud provider. We call it, and Kubernetes is, is fast approaching to be like the standard cloud, which runs on your cloud. There are a lot of customers who, who look at that as their entire cloud platform, which happens to run on AWS or which happens to run on GCP or, but, but they have a lot of, and they use this standard API to to deploy and run and run their services. And they're very happy with the mode there where they don't have to think about the specific cloud provider. But on the other hand, I don't see the cloud providers going on the standardization route. They verged pretty early into very different operating modes for their cloud. So it would be very difficult to reconcile them all. And I think that from a security perspective, there are a lot of tools that their job is to take the different cloud provider concepts and give you abstractions around so you can build security rules on top of them. Uh, I would mention uh, a few for, so the earlier CSPM did it, we also do it. So you can write queries like, give me a VM with a privileged identity, a managed identity, or give me a vulnerable VM who is all internet facing and privileged uh, managed identity. So these are things that third-party tools already support these days. The, the market has created tools like this. It, it's not just the uh, cloud providers. So, so you're saying that this would be more, it would not be the cloud service provider themselves, but it would be, 
like people who are not the consumers of the cloud service provider, they have to go down the path of creating it instead of, because it would not work in their business model to do that. Because for them, they don't really care. Amazon doesn't really care about Microsoft or the other way. They, they don't mention the names of other cloud providers in their documentation <laughs> or press releases. It's as if they don't exist. So. All right, there you go. Well, that was a great question as well, Shreya. Thanks so much for this, man. Let, me, let us know if you have actually have a got question, but thanks so much for this. All right, sweet. Okay, back to our question. And it's also interesting for me to know about the other vulnerability that you have. But before we get into this, so for example, when you guys discovered AutoRap, was that as straightforward as reach out to Azure and, hey, we have a vulnerability and it just goes out from there? And how does that? So you, there's Azure is part of Microsoft and Microsoft has a secured at Microsoft.com, which is the email that you have been able to send the vulnerability reports from, I don't know, early 2000. And, but they also have a new portal and you open, you open a new case at the portal, you submit your, which was, what was the issue, the impact and how to reproduce it. And we also are available to, for them to contact us if they have any questions, because usually like any other form of communication, you might get a miscommunication. So we try to be very, very, and Microsoft, and then there's usually a mo uh, silence and you, you get uh, updates via emails or the portal. And a few days later or a few weeks later, depending on the case and the, you get updates and the, usually we ask them to, to tell us when they have patched it so we can test the, the patch and make sure that it holds. And that's it. And they usually ask you if you want to be mentioned in their security advisories and we pretty much it. That's the happy path. That's happy. Uh, so if you don't hear back, that's the sad part. No, if, if they don't respond to you in a timely manner, we, we usually ping them and we ask them for, to engage, to acknowledge that they have the report and they understood the, the severity. But we, we try to be very, very from the case, uh, think about it from Microsoft side, Microsoft gets a lot of vulnerability reports each day. And mm. most of them are, are low quality and very hard to reproduce. So if you're able to help Microsoft reproduce or any other cloud vendor reproduce the issue and have a very well-written report, you are much more likely to get prioritized and people will, will look at your report and, and acknowledge it a lot faster. Interesting. Oh, okay. So, so that one of the ways you get quicker responses to have like a proof of concept in your email to them as well. Yeah. Yeah. We usually include a proof of concept, uh, which is just usually a Python script where you can just run it and it reproduces. Sweet. It's, it's funny. It's a, it's a double-edged sword. What if someone's giving you a virus in the email as well? Just download this machine. It'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I think Microsoft has uh, Microsoft and all the cloud providers have a, have a mode to to deal with it. yeah fair enough i mean i sand sandboxing this i've got another question from many here any future plans on research in iac tools like terraform integration with azure so usually the infrastructure as code tools they just run apis on the cloud itself so we don't need like the middleman to run apis for us we run it directly from the, this is from the vulnerability perspective but from the as a cloud security vendor we provide tools to work with and help you write better infrastructure code tools and prevent misconfiguration and correlate the change the proposed changes to your current cloud environment so the, these are things that we were planning and we, we also are doing so. Right. I'll leave you in the cloud space. Because I think I, you guys are already enabling IAC. So it doesn't make sense for you to kind of go on the IAC research part. In the IAC itself, like think about it, like what malicious IAC or a malicious Terraform module is possible. It's it's essentially code. So, so, but it's not the same as finding, looking at the architecture from the cloud provider side and, and trying to shake it up a bit. Yep. Yep. Actually, that's a good point. Sweet. Thanks. For, hopefully that answered your question as well, 
great. So another vulnerability that I wanted to quickly go on was the Scilabs one that you guys discovered recently. What, what I don't know, how, is that how you say it? Synlapse? Scilabs? Synlapse, yes. So what is Synlapse? And what's the story there? So Synlapse is a vulnerability in the Azure Synapse service. And the, the vulnerability itself allowed us to, to run code on shared uh, environment and use and pivot from there to get uh, certificates to Azure's own services. So from if you think about it, the services in Azure need to talk to other services and they do this with a certificate. So what we were able to do is we were able to, to extract the certificate that was used by the cloud by the service itself and have the permission that the service has into another service in Azure. So we, we were able to, to actually very high level access to, to Azure data factory and Azure automation pipeline, a uh, signups automation pipeline, which is the equivalent of Redshift in, in AWS. And it's the place where you keep lots and uh, lots of data. Probably uh, PII quick. data as well, most likely. A lot of uh, very important data. Right. And was this similar to the Azure automation one where you're able to kind of look at the whole Netflix example that we went with earlier? So, or is it more just that you get access to entire Netflix Redshift for lack of a better word? So if I were to, to take your example, we were able to exploit this bug and we were able to get key, which let us look at peak in not in just Netflix or LinkedIn happened to be on the same machine. It was just to pick which customer we want to target and just take their data. Right. Yeah, which is more critical. Because this is not resolved yet, right? So no, it's resolved on the, there are two points here. The initial bug that we reported was resolved by Microsoft and we identified an architecture issue in the product where it, it, there is a lot of attack surface, which we can exploit again and again. We were able to bypass the patch a few times and this architecture issue is, is still not resolved. So as a company, we are advising Azure customer to not use the Azure Synapse service until this issue is resolved from Microsoft. Right. Okay. And okay. So people who are listening in, probably if they use Azure signups, they should definitely be checking in or they should just avoid using the service period for now. I'm aware that it's a big ask for a lot of people. Not So it's hard to migrate from service to service, but I would check very closely what's in the service and how things are, which data you have there. And I would say that there's a higher risk there of this data leaking or being targeted by attackers. Because I'm just going by your example there. If I can target Netflix, LinkedIn, whatever, I'm assuming some kind of an identifier ID or some kind of an ID that allows me to kind of flick between them. Would this be a scenario where if I have the basic defense of making it private versus public, would that be a helpful thing? Or it uh, just doesn't really matter because you have my credential, you have my ID, so you can, I could be private or public. You can do a few things to better situate yourself against this, but it's one of those things that you, as a customer don't don't have a lot of things that you can do and you can and you're and we need to wait for for microsoft to finish doing the architectural changes that they need to to enable better separation there all oh, right also wow okay so there's definitely like a big work from their side as well so it's not just the customers but also on their on microsoft side as well that needs to be architectural yes so the, the thing here is that, that it's not as simple as just uh, patching a small bug it's it's really one of those things where the separation between tenants a uh, 
originally architected correctly. Right. Okay. Yeah, that would definitely scare people, I imagine. So maybe one question, right? As we're kind of talking about different vulnerabilities that were discovered, some resolved, some not resolved. Yeah. One thing that I keep coming back to, and this has just been bothering me for a, for a while, is why do we have names for vulnerabilities? Why not just go CVE or CWE or whatever? Like, why is that not being used in this context? So that's a great question. CVE is has you can issue a CVE for everything. You can yeah. issue a CVE for only in specific conditions. And one of those conditions is that the software you're targeting has a distributed version. It means that mm -hmm. I can I get the software and the software has a version. If the software doesn't have a version or it's not distributed, then we cannot issue a CV. And cloud services in general are not don't fall into either of those categories. I don't get like a CD with with Azure on it. Technically you get, but it's not the same. And the problem is that without a CV or other identity, it's really hard to differentiate if we have five issues in, I don't know, Azure Automation, which one we're talking about. So we, yeah. we have to like come up with names so we can have a meaningful conversation about those. Right. So you're saying when it's when you say it's distributed, isn't like the cloud service provider service is also distributed or is it because it would not have like a version one, version two, because most CVs would be like, well, if we were to kind of take the whole security research field to the very basic. When I was learning for it, it was more like, I know I have a really old version of PHP web application. I find a CVE for that version of PHP, and then I use that to exploit the web application, mm -hmm. which is running on that vulnerable version. But yeah. what you're saying is basically because Azure, Google Cloud, and AWS, they're probably all running on the same version for everyone. Yeah. Once you update, it's updated for everyone. Doesn't really, you're not really actively, I, I can't find an older version of Azure to exploit auto wrap. That's right. This is one of those things where the CVE system doesn't really work so we are currently missing a different uh, system to to identify big cloud issues and and there are a few proposals and we'll see how how this goes there is a proposal to have like identifiers for cloud for cloud vulnerabilities so we can have meaningful conversation right also is that i don't know who's running is do, do we know who's driving it as in is that like an organization or is no that... it's it's other commercial companies there they have this so we have a, a proposal from our side uh, other companies have also proposal from their side it's it's a, something it's a conversation going on right who do you even submit this to are like do you support like is that a body no it, it, that that's one of the the things that we're working towards having like a, a joint board yeah, i would not even know who to submit this to like I, am i just calling i don't know the president of the united states man i love to start a cv for cloud but no, but no, thanks for that. I, I appreciate the insight into this field as well. And maybe it's also time to go, kind of quickly switch gears into the whole context of for people who've been listening and they understand AutoRab, they understand Synlabs as well. They understand the approach you've taken to identify some of these vulnerabilities. This is such a new field, almost like to the point that you almost have to ask the question, why is there a need for this now versus mm -hmm. like, because I think people have been talking about bug bounty for long. They still focus on bug bounty for individual applications, but not for, and this was never ever highlighted. Like, why do you feel suddenly there's a lot, lot more attention to, to your point, a lot of people have security research teams in this space now. It's not just one or two individuals independently doing it, like which was the case until last year or maybe a few years before that. But now there are organizations that are getting behind the idea. To your point, everyone's a cloud security citizen. 
and everyone's taking up there. I'm going to take my baton as well. I'm going to find out what's there, what's there. So why do you think now is there so much spotlight on it? So one thing is the focus on the cloud provider side and not only on the customer side. Th there was a general feeling that cloud providers are infallible, and but they're not. They're a software organization like the rest of us and they have bugs, which is a good thing. But their approach on handling their side of the architecture and making sure things are less privileged and you cannot make great, create huge issues from small bugs is on their side. Mm -hmm. This is one thing. The other thing is that to your point, there is not a big difference between being a bug bounty uh, attacker and being a secure cloud security researcher. It's just you use different tools. You don't and your ability to find the same issue many times is not really out there. On the other hand, you get to look at the most advanced the software trusted millions and millions of customers. So it's up there with the hardest things you want to do. So it's it's a great achievement. Yeah. And I think to your point, being so commonly used, it obviously means stakes a lot higher as well. Because mm -hmm. if at your point about the auto wrap example, it having access to, I and mean, we keep using the example of Netflix and LinkedIn, but it could be government organizations as well. It could be other people like, you no, know, with sensitive information about you and I individuals as citizens. And like, you probably want to be more aware of that especially when you're trusting a lot of that information on a, for lack of a better word, it is a third party cloud service provider. It's not really like you, you don't own the cloud. Someone else owns it. You have a contract with them. So it makes sense to cross your T's and T's and C's. I'm also curious for people who may be listening in going, okay, your have has definitely inspired me for doing this research thing. Where does one even start like learning about this? Like, so we've obviously clearly got a question from other people as well, who are quite keen on understanding the space. How does even one start like into this? So th that's a great question. I think that I I'll separate it to two parts. The first one is getting into security research. There's a lot of CTFs and cloud goats and a lot of other ways to spin up vulnerable infrastructure and try to work through it and understand how things are working. And this is generic. It's not cloud provider specific. But if you want to go to, to look at cloud providers issues specifically, you can definitely check the Orca blog. We have a lot of information there which is not just fleshy, big title vulnerabilities like uh, Synlabs and AutoWorp, but also common sense, day-to-day, -day, how to configure to list privilege, how to understand the relationship between resources in your and and things to that to that effect so it's a great resource there's also on twitter there's scott piper and and the cloud forward cloud sect which is a conference dedicated for for cloud security and and definitely just following along being part of the conversation and trying to to engage with new ideas i think that's the best way to learn really great advice as well man for people who may have questions and want to know what is the research space or just to get to know you a bit more where can they find you on social media? Where can they connect with you? So I'm on Twitter, at uh, Yoavalon. And I'm also uh, available. It's my email. So yoav at orca. So you can definitely reach out. And I also, I also advise you to, to reach out to my researchers on the Synlabs one. And they're both really very active on social media and really want to engage with other researchers. Awesome. And I'll put their links in there as well. So definitely shout out to your team as well for finding those as well. But thank you so much for this. And thank you everyone for who was listening in on the Twitter space and YouTube. But that is pretty much what we had for the show. Thank you so much. And we'll see you next week. And I'll say a midweek episode next week. So I'll see you next week for another episode on Azure security. But thank you so much, everyone. We will see you soon.
Thank you for listening to that episode of Cloud Security Podcast. If you found some new information from that episode, we would appreciate if you share it with others. Share it with us as well if you have any good feedback or good learnings from the episode. We are on all your favorite podcast platforms. If you don't find us there, you can always go on our website, www.cloudsecuritypodcast.tv to listen to the latest episode. We appreciate your support in helping us grow. It helps us bring more guests. It helps us support the channel. So really appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time and talk to you on the next episode.